0: Welcome to CID Speaker Series Podcast. This is a full recording of our Security and Development Seminar on Corruption, Impunity, and Development in Latin America. The seminar is one of a series of four high-level discussions exploring the intersections between security, growth, and development in Latin America. They are led by Thomas Abt, Senior Research Fellow at CID, and Joao Manuel Pino de Mello, Lehman Visit and Scholar at the David Rockefeller Center for Latin American Studies, and future presentations from prominent academics, practitioners, and policymakers.
1: So, uh, welcome everyone uh, to CID's first security and, uh, and development session discussion of the year. Um, those of you in the room are uh, likely quite familiar with the Center for International Development, uh, but for those watching live via Facebook, Um, CID is a university-wide center uh, that works to advance the understanding of development challenges and offer viable solutions to problems of global poverty. Uh, Housed at uh, the Harvard Kennedy School, CID's ongoing mission is to apply knowledge to and revolutionize the world of development practice. And uh, CID also engages directly with governments and policymakers to affect decision-making and to increase uh, prosperity around the globe. Uh, my name is Thomas Apt. I serve as the senior research fellow uh, here at CID heading up the innovation in citizen security uh, project and it's a real pleasure for me to uh, introduce to you now our center's fearless leader, Dr. Ricardo Hausman. Um, in addition to running the center and its growth lab, uh, Ricardo is a professor uh, of, de- uh, of practice of economic development here at the Harvard Kennedy School. Previously he served as Chief Economist to the Inter-American Development Bank. He was the Minister of Planning of Venezuela and Chair of the IMF World Bank Development Committee. Ricardo has advised well over 40 uh, countries on creating effective growth strategies and development policies and in my humble opinion he is simply one of the most important influential academic leaders in the development field today. So please welcome him now.
2: Thank you, thank you, Thomas, uh, and thank you for your leadership in in pushing this project forward. Uh, I think this is um, this is a great initiative that CID is is starting because if you think about uh, uh, the citizens of developing countries and you ask them what's at the top of their concerns, issues of security are at the top, and. Uh, uh, we don 't really have uh, at the Kennedy School a focus on security in developing countries. The issues of criminal justice in the u s tend to be very different. Uh, there are issues of excess incarceration uh, there are issues of other things but in in, in the context of our of our countries uh, uh, justice uh, corruption, and so on are top of mind uh, but not necessarily uh, top of uh, mind in many of the subject areas uh, at the school. So, so I'm, I'm really happy uh, for your leadership, Thomas, in pushing uh, and helping us organize thinking in this area. Um, I just read uh, two days ago that so far in the month of uh, October, uh, there had been Uh, 386 assassinations in Caracas Uh, and so Caracas is a city of like 5 million people Uh, Boston's metropolitan area is a city of about four and a half million people so they're comparable so I looked up uh, what was the number of assassinations in Boston and uh, and the number for the year 2015 was 38 so it's 38 in a year 386 in part of a month so it's like more than 120 times more frequent in Caracas than here so, so this is a humongous thing humongous right so just huge and um, and I am no expert in this area I'm completely trespassing into other people's expertise uh, I have very little to contribute myself uh, but I think uh, we should create the space for thinking to advance in this, in this area, in this school and, and more globally. So so I'm very, very happy that, uh, that we're going to have an opportunity to, uh, to, uh, to touch on this. Uh, for example, uh, security, justice and so on were not part of the Millennium Development Goals uh, for the year 2000. They are now part of the... Uh, sustainable development goals one of 17 or but you know but so it's it's already progress that this issue is is taking more uh, more attention Um, I'm very happy that we're starting with corruption in Mexico Uh, we'll move on to security in Colombia and other exciting stuff next uh, next semester Uh, so I hope that over time we will be building up uh, um, a dynamic sense of um, Understanding on on some of these uh, on some of these issues. So, thank you again, and let me pass you back on to you.
1: Uh, thanks so much, Ricardo, and uh, thank you for your leadership, and thank you uh, for uh, um, you know really pushing this agenda. I know that for you and for many other people uh, at the center, these issues are personal as well as professional. So, thank you. Uh, So now on to our session. Uh, Today uh, we'll explore how corruption and impunity obstruct development in Latin America with a special focus on Mexico. Uh, We're very pleased to have two prominent anti-corruption leaders uh, from Mexico here today. Uh, Dr. Lourdes Morales serves as the Associate uh, Professor at the Centro de Investigacion de Docencia Económica uh, where she currently runs the Office of Accountability Projects. I hope I got that right. Uh, she conducts research on uh, citizen participation, electoral processes, and in indigenous reasons, with, also with a focus on gender issues, transparency, and accountability. And she's published numerous articles and books in those areas. Uh, Dr. Morales holds a PhD in political science from La Sorbonne University in Paris. Uh also with us is Dr. Marcos Fernandez. Uh Dr. Fernandez serves as a research professor at the School of Government in the Tech de Monterrey, uh, and also as a research associate at Mexico Evalua, uh, and formerly as a fellow at the Woodrow Wilson Center uh in Washington, D.C. Uh he specializes in uh studies of political economies, education policy transparency, corruption, and the challenges of good governance. He's consulted for numerous international organizations, including but not limited to the World Bank, uh, the Inter-American Development Bank, and the United Nations. Uh, Dr. Fernandez holds a PhD in political science from Duke University. And uh, with that, uh, let's begin our discussion. So, uh, Lourdes, Marco. Corruption has always been an issue uh, and has always been on the sort of policy agenda in Mexico. But in recent years, it really appears to have had uh, a major uptick in emphasis. Uh, Why is that? And what's happened uh, to elevate the issue? Uh, We'll begin with you, Lourdes.
0: Thanks a lot for the invitation and the kind presentation. I don't feel myself like a... Important leader. (laughs) I'm only part of a a project. Oh, now you hear a project named uh, the Accountability Network. That is a project created at the Center for Research and and Technology. uh, Center for Research and Teaching in in Economics. That's a university, a public university. And we created this project to uh, join efforts from civil society organizations, from academic institutions, and some public institutions. This is um, an uncommon effort because uh, on a country when trust through institutions and through government is is not very common, this, uh, this network has helped to build proposals for an accountability public policy. So, uh, why corruption matters particularly now? What happened in Mexico for the last few years? Well, I think that uh, measures about corruption, measures such as the one made by Transparency International and other index, show that corruption hasn't improved. I, I, I mean, uh, the, and the policies against corruption hasn't shown the outcomes that we wish they had. And uh, what happened on the last summer is that two, uh, two things uh, triggered a huge mobilization. The first one was a corruption case that happened uh, in 2014, a corruption case linking the first lady to a possible conflict of interest with a house where, where the, she was living with the president and with a contract uh, with uh, some enterprise that apparently benefited from uh, the relationship with the president. Uh, These enterprises received a lot of public contracting. And uh, this, uh, after a research made by a journalist, a very well-known journalist called Carmen Aristegui, showed um, the limits of the law for uh, dealing with conflict of interest. The other thing was the Ayotzinapa case, where 43 students got arrested and then disappeared with the convenience of the local police in the state of Guerrero, one of the most poorest states in the country. So uh, this context triggered uh, indignation, social indignation, and joined two agendas that normally were treated separately. The first agenda is the agenda of human rights respect and human rights activists. And the other agenda is the agenda of uh, transparency and corruption. I must say that corruption was uh, an issue concerning mainly people from the private sector and some uh, um, well-educated people. It it was not an issue uh, that was uh, mobilizing uh, this general society, but we heard a lot of scandals. We usually hear a lot of scandals about corruption, about uh, conflict of interest, about governors uh, misusing public money and nothing happens. So these two phenomena, these two cases may joined these agendas into the fight against impunity, and that's where corruption became the main issue in the public agenda.
1: If you could, uh, just uh, impunity as a special is a special term, a special significance. Could you explain for the audience what you mean by impunity? Yes,
0: I mean uh, impunity uh, from the point of view of a lack of consequences. Uh, people got disappeared, uh, uh, governors uh, misused the public funds, and nothing happens. We hear the scandals, and we do not see investigations. We don't see anyone going to jail. It just happens. And casually, during uh, the first years after the year 2000, when we changed of uh, political party at the presidential level, when we thought that uh, we had finally got into a democratic system, we thought that transparency was going to be the antidote against corruption. And reality shows that transparency only gave us more information about these cases. And normally it became like a social vaccine. You get used to the scandals. You get used to impunity. So uh, when I I talk about impunity, I talk about uh, lack of responsibility and lack of consequences uh, when you violate the law. And you want me to tell the story after the, what happened? Please, OK. Yes. So that, that was the general um, picture of, 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 uh, of Mexico. After these cases, uh, an initial discussion that had started at the beginning of the government of the actual president, Enrique Peña Nieto, about how to curtail corruption was, was activated. When he got in office, he made three huge promises to the population. The first one is that he was going to improve transparency and he was going to launch a particular reform to make transparency happen in all the three levels of government. He also promised to create a commission for monitoring public spending in publicity, the, the official publicity when we spend a lot, a lot of, of money without controls and without accountability. And the third promise was to create an anti-corruption agency, a single agency to finally curtail corruption. He went in office and, f- and he made a coalition with uh, the main political parties represented in the Congress, that is the right wing. Uh, political party, the PAN, the left-wing political party, the PRD, and the central party, his political party, the (laughs) PRI. Then he, um, he, he made the Pact for Mexico, and he launched 12 ambitious reforms, including the one about transparency. In the first year of office, these reforms were approved. It was very, quite impressive, and international press talked about the Mexican moment, the miracle. We are finally getting into a modernized country where investment can come. One of the uh, more polemic reforms was about the energy sector. We opened the energy sector for foreign investment, so everyone was sort of happy. But. Besides these changes, at the state level, violence increased and uh, the lack of rule of law made possible that for the first years we had uh, registered more than uh, 12,000 disappearances and killings in the states. Disappearances. People that got disappeared. Disappearances, yes. So. After these scandals, I'm going to 2014, the, the issue, the reform about corruption wasn't discussed yet, was activated. The response of the government, because of demonstrations in the street, because of the anger of people uh, telling the government that corruption was really the main issue that wasn't faced yet, activated a, a huge discussion at, at the Congress. Two organizations that are part of the accountability network, that is uh, Mexican Transparency and the Institute for Mexican Competitiveness, launched an initiative for the midterm election of 2015 that wanted to put some pressure on the candidates to make three uh, public declarations. The first one was the asset declaration, The second one, the fiscal declaration, that is, if they pay taxes or not, and the possible conflict of interest declaration. This third one was uh, related to the scandal of the First Lady. They made that uh, to put some pressure on the candidates, but they couldn't force them to do that. They just put the, the message in the public debate. Some of them did it, some of them represented these three declarations to get elected, but other didn't. With this situation on the the country, uh, the Congress approved the constitutional reform that made possible the creation of an anti-corruption system. Before that, the debate was, we do not need a particular uh, commission, an anti-corruption agency, a single institution to curtail such a complex problem such as corruption. But we do need something, an institutional basis, that could enact at least three things. The first one is that uh, we need to reinforce the check and balances. So institutional cooperation is needed to face the problem of uh, corruption. The second one is that if we focus only on uh, particular corruption cases and we go only to chase corrupt people, this is going to fail because we need to monitor and to know which causes, what causes corruption. And uh, the third one is uh, what we call institutional intelligence. That is, this. Uh, this part for monitoring uh, the, the loopholes and the, and the legal things that made corruption happen. So with that context, we approved the constitutional reform and uh, people mobilized to push more things to get uh, consequences against corrupt people.
1: Thank you very much, Lourdes. Uh, Marco, I just want to follow up on, uh, on that uh, very helpful background. Uh, this sort of period of mobilization, just to sort of draw this out, uh, created a movement for legislation. And that legislation uh, was pushed uh, very much by uh, actors and stakeholders outside of government. Could you comment on this, uh, the role of civil society, and sort of bring us up to date on where we are with this national legislation now?
3: Yes, of course. Uh, thank you so much for, for the invitation to share some of the ideas of of the challenges that Mexico is facing, precisely to curb uh, effectively corruption, um, as uh, Lourdes uh, explained. I mean, a series of scandals that took place uh, very vividly uh, produced a lot of indignation among citizens. I mean, in addition to the two scandals, the the Casablanca scandal that this house uh, uh, acquired in questionable terms by the First Lady, the Ayotzinapa uh, tragedy of of these uh, former teaching students, but also, like, uh, it was a scandal of a conflict of interest of the finance minister. It was also the scandal of uh, a tape uh, where several congressmen were caught negotiating illegal payments uh, through their di- uh, to their districts. It was the scandal of the New York Times documenting... Uh, the former governor, governor of, of Oaxaca, uh, the poorest state with Chiapas uh, in Mexico, uh, having a series of properties in Manhattan and in other places in the US that clearly do not uh, uh, agree or are not consistent with the income uh, history as a government official. That uh, basically reopened the door for, for the discussion in legal terms first of how are we gonna create a series of institutions or strengthen the institutions that currently exist in Mexico to fight effectively corruption that uh, created uh, the window of, of opportunity through a series of, of members of, of civil society organizations and, and academia. I mean, the members of La Red de Rendición de Cuentas, members of Mexico Evalúa, El Inco, Transparencia Mexicana, uh, like several organizations, Fundar, etc. A series of organizations that we began to to gather to to discuss and to put pressure uh, with with Congress on how first to create this uh, constitutional reform to create really a system and not an agency to curb corruption, because the diagnostic was it is like contrary to to what happened in other countries such as the Hong Kong experience, for example, and there is a huge literature uh, on on the ineffectiveness of of single agencies to curb corruption, uh, the need of really creating a system in which the different institutions, such as as the Auditor General Office, for example, the Inspector General, a special prosecutor to to investigate corruption cases, then the the need to create a special uh, uh, administrative a court in charge of of uh, investigating and punish, punishing cases related to to corruption uh, the need of really using effectively the transparency laws that were emerging like these different institutions uh, to put them together in coordination with a, a citizens body to really try to to put together the efforts against corruption right. that Thank is that citizens committee against corruption that is what took place in terms of of the uh, anti-corruption constitutional reform. In those negotiations uh, at the beginning uh, it was a back and forth uh, between members of civil society and and congressmen. There were some of them very open, uh,
1: very... uh, Well let me just uh interrupt for one second. You're describing a negotiation between government officials and civil society. Um, how did civil society even get to the table? My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that civil society actually through this referendum process actually proposed legislation directly rather than having legislators do this, which created a, a, a new context for negotiation. But
3: that was in the second stage. Okay. I mean the first stage was the the and a uh, constitutional reform uh, and the way that, that that from my point of view that we sneak through the uh, legislative uh, door was precisely taking advantage of the scandals that were taking place and increasing the political cost of the inaction of the government that so far had promised that it was going to legislate on the matter but that really had not taken seriously its promise and it's something paradoxically because at the same time I mean there was all these uh, structural reforms that were taking place in Mexico but not a serious discussion on how to tackle corruption and s- several of the, of, of the areas that have been a, a reformed, the education sector for example, the energy sector are really uh, emblematic of corruption practices. Not so, not so long ago, I mean, in Mexico, it was an accepted practice to inherit and sell teaching posts. So, I mean, so clearly, I mean, there is the discourse of the government saying we're going to transform Mexico, have all these uh, necessary reforms for productivity, but not really taking in in consideration one of the key hills of of development, the corruption that clearly in the first wave of of structural reforms uh, during the 90s undermined the capacity of these reforms to really transform in a much more deeper way, Mexico, precisely because there was a lot of corruption back then. And suddenly we were having a second, a second uh, a kind of, of, of mistake in that sense of omitting that problem, but suddenly that omission was not possible anymore because of these scandals. And civil society through, for example, the network of uh, Red de Rendición de Cuentas, we began to work together to put, uh, to put proposals on the table on how Several laws should be uh, transformed or modified in order to make progress. Obviously, it's not only a legal matter, it's not only a matter of laws, but the change, the legislative change, is necessary—a necessary condition, not a sufficient condition. I mean, clearly nowadays we have the big challenge of how to transform the institutions in charge of uh, enforcing this uh, this rule of law. But that is the, the first—the first window was through the scandal. Right. The second window—sorry, just to, to sure. interruption—but the second window precisely was once that the, the movement was going on. I mean, precisely. I mean, members of of these organizations, we put together, at the beginning there was no clear agreement, but little by little we overcome our differences, and we put together a citizens initiative uh, precisely to mobilize public opinion in support of of, of thousands of of signatures to 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 propose a citizens initiative for the legislative, the secondary legislation that was a consequence of the constitutional reform, and we can talk about all this second process because here is where really wa- there was an even much more active role of civil society and academia in the negotiations of the different uh, legislations the the penal code the administrative uh, law etc that we began to push i mean we from my point of view achieve several changes. Unfortunately, we also witnessed firsthand the resistance of a political class to really understand the kind of crisis that the young democracy in Mexico is having to really tackle much more effectively the the problem of of, of corruption and i mean we, we still need other laws that have to be uh, changed but the, the the most difficult challenge and is something that clearly is going to resonate here in this audience. Is how do you transform the Mexican state? How do you achieve a professionalization of these institutions in such a way that they are capable of really enforcing the new legislation that has been approved? Because you can have in paper the death laws uh, design, but can be just dead, uh, dead uh, letters or dead, dead bodies. Uh, without not really enforcing precisely because of this institutional incapacity okay. that has mexico
1: let me jump in here marco uh... and i uh, uh... thank you for bringing us uh... up to date on that i wanna uh, i want to uh... ask uh... ricardo uh... to sort of elaborate on something you said you talked about uh... the uh... Um, that the the administration made made progress in reforms relating to productivity Uh, um, But that uh, those reforms were incomplete if you didn't also address uh, corruption. Um, This is something that I know that, uh, Ricardo, you've thought about. Um, Could you share with us some of your thoughts about the interrelationships between uh, uh, productivity, development, capacity, and corruption? And then we'll come back uh, through all of you so you can answer. Sure. Well,
2: I thank you very much. I I really enjoyed the comments uh, of Lourdes and Marco, and I'm just reminded I should have said that uh, these are two institutions, CIDE and uh, Monterrey Tech, that the CID has had a long-term relationship with, and we just finished last year the Atlas of Economic Complexity of Mexico with CIDE, and, and we helped set up the uh, School of Government at uh, the Monterrey Tech. So. Uh, Welcome here. Um, I think um, if you're going to talk about corruption, you see, Wittgenstein said that all philosophical problems are language problems, and that imprecise language uh, leads to imprecise thinking and strategies. and, And the problem we have with the term corruption is that it applies to so many different phenomena that uh, it's like saying sort of like disease, but you know, there are so many different kinds of disease that it's not obvious that there is a strategy against disease in the abstract, right? Uh, we're, even the examples you gave, Ayotzinapa and the houses. So the houses sort of like influence peddling. Uh, the other one is narco trafficking uh, mixed with uh, government involvement and and so on so so these are fairly different phenomena that may not have a simple solution i find it very interesting how society got mobilized and typically uh, societies are more easily mobilized to fight evil than to fight for good right Uh, evil kind of like gets us going right because it's us against them right
1: negativity bias
2: And uh, uh, but the question is, uh, is, is the problem the presence of evil, or is the problem the absence of a good? So I would put it to you that the good is something, it's one of the programs here at CID, it's, the good is a capable state, a state that is able to do, You know the public interest in in an efficient and effective manner and corruption is one of the failings of a capable state so it's a state that is unable to control its own agents it's a state that is unable to impose rules on society that it's supposed to want wants to impose it wants to make society follow the law and it's unable to do so so so, in some sense, corruption is is the absence of a capable state, and and you can think of an agenda. So, imagine a movement. We want, we what do we want? A capable state. When do we want it? Now. It's not, it's not, it's not as sexy as getting these bastards in jail, right? So, so my my concern is that, um, is that we still know very little. Of you know even in Mexico what parts of the mexican government are clean what parts of the mexican government are corrupt which states are clean which states are corrupt which areas is it education healthcare criminal justice um, where, where are what kinds of problems um, now you know we're all very impressed by the brazilian success with uh, uh, this lavajato the car wash thing because um, you see the ability of an independent court system uh, to impose itself on the most powerful people in the nation. But in some sense, that is maybe an easier task, or it has some complexities, uh, but in some sense it's much easier to fight you know, white collar crime of people who don't have an army to corrupt the whole judicial system and so on, like the narco-traffickers have. So maybe you make more progress in one kind of, of corruption than you'll be able to make in another. So I think that you know, research should generate um, more understanding of you know, what are the different kinds of diseases, what are the different kinds of therapeutic strategies. And most important, I want to make sure that at the end of the story, we are left uh, with a capable state. Not that at the end of the story, we are left with an inept state that steals less. Uh,
1: thank you, Ricardo. Uh, so let me let me ask you, Lourdes and and Marco, to respond. Uh, you know, how do we ensure that these very promising legislative reforms uh, um, don't create a sort of form over function scenario uh, um, where uh, where you know. On the books, institutions uh, appear legitimate, but they're not performing uh, core functions, as, uh, as Ricardo said.
0: Thank you. But it's a big challenge. I completely agree with the diagnosis. Uh, when you look at other international cases, such as Brazil, such as Guatemala, you'll see that in the Mexican case, society did not mobilize against an actor, a single actor. They didn't ask for the dismissal of the president, for the imprisonment of singular people. They asked for institutional changes. You might say, you are so conservative. (laughs) Your civil society is so conservative. You you don't react uh, the way you should have. But it was interesting to see that there, there is a little hope about how these institutions are going to work. We also have a problem because we have to manage expectations. The movement that we, where we participated, had these two stages. The first stage focused on the constitutional reform, and the second stage. And the first stage was only interaction between civil society organisations, some of them, and our um, accountability champions, <laughs> that is senators that were engaged. On these calls and made legislation happen. But the second stage, taking advantage of the proposal that made these two organizations, IMCO and Mex- Mexican Transparency, was for getting a single legislation that is the law called three of three, talking about these uh, declarations, public asset declaration, and etc. But it contained more than that. It contained a huge redesign of the responsibility system with the typification of concrete uh, corruption acts, taking as a definition of corruption, the the classical definition of the use of power for private gain. So uh, the expectations that we generated were that with this legislation and this new system, corruption was going to end. And it's not true. We were on the streets taking these signatures because we had to collect 120,000 signatures. And at the end, we had 650,000 signatures. And people went to sign and they told us, Where do I sign? I want all the corrupt sh- people in jail and I want that guy to get punished. And I was, Well, no, hold on. <laughs> the, the initiative doesn't say that. The initiative is about building a new system. No, 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 I want to sign. I want to do something against the corrupt people. So we have. Yes, <laughs> we have to manage expectations. So what do we do? I think we have short term challenges. Such as ending the route of uh, harmonisation of the laws. Mexico is a very complex country. It's, it has 32 states with huge differences between one state and another. We have the southern states, such as Oaxaca, such as Chiapas, for seeing an, an example. In Chiapas, 74% of the people are in poverty. And new- Nuevo León at the northern part, the states of the northern part of the country, are more, uh, wealth. they have more wealth, such as Nuevo León, where when the poverty rate is only 20% of the people. So in this complex society, we have to finish with a normative building. And once the normative building is finished, we have to start uh, making c- capacity building on the new... Institutions is a new system where you have to make budget happen, you have to guarantee certain autonomy of action to avoid political capture of people that is going to intervene in this system. And we created a, a count, what we thought it was a counterbalance. Uh, Uh, institution that is called the Citizen Committee to link civil society organizations and public participation on the fighting against corruption and is going to be part of the new system. So I will say autonomy, meritocracy, budget, and building capacity at the short term.
1: Thank you, Lourdes. Uh, Marco, uh, if you could, uh, you know, answering Ricardo and 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 building on Lourdes's, uh point, uh, the, you know, the laws on are on the books, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, Lourdes talked about budget um, and uh, and about the challenges of implementation. H- how do we make this real in terms of actual performance of these agencies, and how does that actually deliver for the for the everyday average m- Mexican?
3: I mean, I I think that that is a key question.
1: I think, uh, from, my,
3: from my perspective, even the, the people that work uh, in scholar terms in this area still are far away of having a satisfactory uh, answer. I mean, if we, for example, uh, see the recent book by Alina Mungyu ppd for example, okay? The way that other countries have moved little by little... Uh, to better development outcomes i mean it 's a, a series of 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 factors that and some even uh, very historical factors in terms of wars for example, that force uh, uh, countries to have more professional bureaucracies uh, i 'm in the middle of of uh, working in a research project that uh, has the goal of of having a better Scholar understanding of, of this phenomenon, but particularly concerned precisely with the policy implications of how do we move uh, forward. What we have learned, for example, of other countries is that in order to little by little move in the direction of the coalition of the good, okay, rather than the coalition of just focusing on the evil, I mean, one key aspect is a free press because it increases the political cost of corrupt practices. And in Mexico, we have a huge challenge because although we have a better press compared to what we had 20 years ago, for example, we are far away of having good investigative journalism. Why? Because many of the media are themselves involving conflict of interest because they are dependent on high levels of revenue through government publicity. The other problem that we have is the money in in electoral politics and the patrimonialism, the patronage uh, and clientelistic practice that undermine the capacity of really little by little building intelligence in the institutions. Because every party comes, brings along their, their people, appointed through partisan or personal uh, relationships rather than on merit. And under those circumstances, it's impossible to develop the investigative, for example, capacities to little by little bringing people into justice and send the signals, the incentives, that impunity is reducing, and therefore, the probability of you committing a crime, not only corruption, but any kind of crime, you have to be in thinking twice because you have a high probability of, of being caught. That, clearly, we, we are far away of achieving that. I mean, as a member of the, peop- of the persons that were involved in the discussions with Congress, all the time, I had on the back of my mind that, We didn't have to be uh, naive, thinking that things were going to change with changes in the laws. But the real problem was going to see how are we going to transform the institutions to little by little create these capacities that Bridget and others have been uh, uh, working on. I mean, how do you develop those capacities? How do you introduce really meritocracy, for example, uh, into the civil service? When I was conducting a series of interviews last year with members, for example, of the Justice Department, I was like pushing them, say, okay, obviously they have they tried to twist your arm in many of the investigations against corruption here in the US. And the officials were saying, Yes, but there is a difference. We are civil servants. We have professional civil service. So I mean we have certain protection. If they're still trying to Push us in the direction of, of trying to, for example, omit investigations of corruption. We can always walk the street and go to the Washington Post, leak the information, huge scandal takes place, and then all the, the political machine activates. So people have to be thinking twice in order to try to push, for example, the FBI or other agencies involved ca- in the investigation of corruption, corruption cases to look the other way around. In Mexico, We are far away of achieving this kind of of behavior. And precisely, for me, uh, the question is, okay, we are observing signals, for example, the colleagues of Animal Politico, uh, this new network of journalists that uh, use the social media very effectively Mm -hmm. to conduct good investigations uh, of corruption. Precisely, the leading investigation that made public all the embezzlement practices of the governor in Veracruz was conducted by Animal Politico. And that increased the political cost in such a way that basically the governor was forced to, to take a leave of absence. And unfortunately, I mean, right, right now, he's, uh, 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 he ran away, he's on the run. I mean, and we are putting a lot of pressure on the authorities that really do the investigation and, and bring him to, to justice. Right. Just so in that sense, little by little, we're far away of reaching this, this uh, s- uh, state uh, with the capacity to really enforce the rule of law. I agree with you completely. That has to be the goal. Otherwise, I mean, obviously, the possibility of enforcing the rule of law in Mexico is gonna be very little
1: right and just just for the audience's uh, uh, uh information if you're not familiar uh recently the uh, governor of de la Cruz uh stepped down uh in the wake of these a- a- uh, accusations a few you know a few weeks before uh election and then an arrest warrant was issued and they're currently uh, searching for him uh, uh, to address these allegations, uh, Ricardo. Any any uh, responses to these responses?
2: No, well, uh, I, I I really um, am very impressed at uh, the progress that civil society in Mexico is doing because the standard thing in in it's uh, the intuitive thing in Latin America is that when you face a problem, you want to write a law. Right, sort of like oh, oh, there's a problem. What law should I pass? Right, and and it, it's so it's it's not it's not a very intuitive thing in the U.S. As sort of like the solution is a change in the law. Um, um, uh, let me. Well, you know, there's this joke that says that uh, when traffic accidents started to happen in in the U.S. Uh, The Kennedy School invented speed limits, and MIT invented uh, the uh, safety belt. (laughs) (laughs) So some of these things might be impacted by technology. Uh, There's these cases where policemen were paid in cash, and suddenly they moved to pay them in electronic money. And suddenly, the policemen saw an increase of 35% in their salary. uh, nobody had increased their salary. It's just that the person who was giving them the cash was no longer in the take. Right? <laughs> yeah. So, so, so uh, sometimes, uh, uh, sometimes, so uh, changes happen through civil so, so, through society. For example, the international civil society created this extractive industry transparency initiative, uh, not to have governments enact laws or anything, but to force the companies. To make public the taxes that they had paid, so that uh, and and so you acted internationally on the agents of the other side of corruption, not on the ability of the state to enforce its its rules. The things you mentioned about just uh, reputation, uh, there is no law. I, I mean, there might be a law against uh, groping women, but. Um, <laughs> <laughs> sure, there is.
1: <laughs>
2: Here, there is. But but this this issue of groping women is um, is having consequences outside of the law. It's having consequences because of people's attitudes towards certain behaviors and t- people's political response to certain behaviors. So uh, we unfortunately did uh, not unfortunately. We fortunately did a research with. With really disappointing uh, uh, findings. Uh, in India, uh, the uh, Evidence for Policy Design, which is one of the programs at CID, uh, studied what were the consequences of informing voters in India about the corruption history of candidates. And the answer was nothing. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so it's also a bit cultural in the sense of, you know. What's your impression of what you expect from your leaders? What, uh, what, right. what is accepted behavior? Uh, because if um, if laws are sort of like very legalese and not founded as an expression of shared moral values, uh, people will find them sort of like ar- of arbitrary imposition rather than uh, of expected imposition, even if without enforcement, right? Because it's part of like the moral code, not the legal code. Uh,
1: I think you make a very interesting point there. Uh, in uh, in the study of criminal justice and criminology uh, and in sociology, we often talk about uh, the study of formal social control through uh, the administration of laws, prosecution, uh, arrests, uh, incarcerations. Uh, and the informal social control, you know, 90-95% of all social control is informal. Why do we, you know, uh, not light up a cigarette uh, in uh, in this conference room? There's no police officer here to to enforce that. Um, Interestingly, generally speaking, uh, there's a lot of people who study informal social control and there's a lot of people who study formal social control. They don't often uh, talk to one another. And in fact, I think in some ways, uh, a lot of this discussion of, um, of corruption and legitimacy is about the interrelationship between formal and informal social control. And can you create a virtuous circle where one is reinforcing the other, or do you have a vicious cycle where one is undermining the other? Um, there, there is um, president, uh, this is a phrase that's attributed
2: to many people, but I've always heard it to uh, uh, be attributed to President uh, um, López lo, um, uh, no, no, the one before the revolution, uh, uh, Porfirio Díaz, Porfirio Díaz, who said uh, in, in a loose translation in English, for my friends, everything, yeah. for my enemies, the law. Juarez. Juarez. <laughs> that was Juárez, so it's uh, everybody gets attributed. <laughs> But I thought Juarez was a hero. <laughs> yes. But for my friends, anything. For my enemies, the law. So the law is not something that expresses our good. It's something with which you punish right. your political enemies. So it's, it's a rule of law. I, I mean, Fukuyama makes uh, an interesting point that the really important part of rule of law is not the capacity of the state to impose the laws on the citizen. But the capacity of the law to be imposed on the state itself, right. on constraining state behavior, right? right? And uh, and in that sense, uh, um, uh, at the core of all these rules and these constitutional things is what is the capacity to control the state itself.
1: Right. So, just uh, I want to just uh, uh, change the subject ever so slightly. We haven't actually talked about the concrete impacts that. Corruption can have on growth, on development, uh, and so I would just like uh, first Lourdes, and then and then Marco uh, and Ricardo. Maybe you can follow up uh, more generally. Um, how is in wh- what are the concrete ways in which uh, the inability to uh, rein in corruption or to improve the performance of these organizations? How is this hurting uh, Mexico? Uh, and uh, so, if you could answer that.
0: Thanks a lot. Well, in many ways, uh, some researchers talk about the effects of corruption and the cost of corruption. I don't really agree on the way they measure this cost, because they talk about 10 points of the GDP. And I wonder how these calculations are made. (laughs) But what we know, the evidence shows that uh, corruption has an effect on investment, on public trust, on fundamental rights such as access to health services, educational services, and that is very well documented. It affects uh, society in all levels, even relationship between citizenships, trust between one another. We have a recent report called The Quality of Citizenship in Mexico, and res- results are terrible because we always talk about an ideal citizen. The ideal citizen that gets informed that uh, that wants their representatives accountable. The ideal citizen that knows his rights and demands to this, the, that these rights are accomplished. But the reality is another one. So one of the concrete effects about corruption, I'll say, is not only at the economic level but also at the social level and the cultural level.
1: Marco?
3: I think that that uh, is a provocative question because clearly there is a huge debate uh, in the research community on how to really uh, identify the effects of, of corruption over growth and eventually over development. From my point of view, I mean many of the effects are indirect in the sense that it undermines, for example, the possibility of having good quality of education. If there is a lot of of corruption, I mean, it's impossible to, inside the the public education system, it is very hard to have good teachers, for example, because many are appointed through corrupt practices. Uh, In many of our countries, in Latin America, eh, that's the other area of work that I do. And we have extensive uh, evidence of, of unfortunate uh, practices of of uh, of corruption through the teachers' unions. Uh, you observe uh, the indirect effect through uh, bad health outcomes when you observe, for example, higher prices of, of medicines or, or absent uh, the absence of, of of medicines because, despite higher higher budgets toward the health system, suddenly the, the things are not there, and you begin to observe negative consequences in in the health opportunities of, of, of people. So through those kind of, 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 of channels, you observe a, a negative relationship uh, with uh, toward development. Uh, I, I agree. Uh, I mean, there is a huge literature uh, on that. I tend to, to, to agree more on the side of how it undermines uh, the trust toward political institutions. I mean, you observe like a correlation, maybe it's not a causation, but you can see clearly that societies uh, with high levels of, of uh, corruption uh, have low levels of trust toward political institutions. No. Uh, so so clearly that also undermines the health of democratic uh, regimes uh, when corruption and and the incapacity of the state to to enforce the rule of, of of law so that is the way that that I see it I am aware of of all the criticisms that for example Mauro and others have received in terms of the effects of corruption uh, on growth uh, but I mean uh, Precisely learning, for example, from the literature on political regimes and growth, I tend to to agree with these indirect uh, effects that, that some uh, have found precisely of, uh, of, of democracy on growth through precisely the construction of, 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 of trust and everything that, that uh, I just forgot the name of this Professor in Boston University that works on these issues, but I mean, there are several scholars that have been working on that area. I think that a similar kind of story is the one associated uh, on the effects of corruption and development.
1: Okay. Ricardo,
3: well, you know,
2: uh, research and advocacy always fight over answers to this question because the advocates want a number where they can say that promotes their cause. Uh, The researchers are a little bit more careful because we don't know what you mean by corruption, we don't know how to measure corruption, etc. But in in a project we are doing in Sri Lanka, uh, I learned uh, a word I didn't know before. uh, And the word is uh, speed money. And the Sri Lankans uh, make a distinction between uh, corruption and speed money. So uh, speed money is what you give a government official to do for you what he's supposed to do. And uh, in some sense people might feel a little bit wronged by an official asking for money for the things he was supposed to do for free. But uh, they don't find it morally condemnable on the, on, on the public. Um, now, if you ask me, what would Essentially
1: be… Essentially to expedite whatever the process, yeah. the government process is. Exactly. Yes. I see. E- exactly. So, so… Speed
2: money. E- so, so um, e- you might think, well, e- e- you know, it's corruption, so let's attack e- the p- payment of speed money. You may end up in a worse world because, you no, know, now the only reason by the guys do something is because they, you know, they get a little bit of a kickback on the side. So if you really control speed money, you may get a worse government. So in a, I, you know, we're doing a project in Panama where we think that uh, Panama would benefit enormously from immigration, and they have very restrictive immigration policies, but thank God they're very poorly enforced. And there are all sorts of ways in which you can get around it. So you'd say, do I want really the government to enforce well a really bad law? So um, more importantly, uh, I, I try to do some econometrics on this. Uh, and, you know, we have these uh, World Bank indices of uh, state capability and World Bank indices on control of corruption. And so I will ask myself, you know, so is it the capable state is it the corruption? What's the story? So I don't believe too much any of these numbers or any of these results. But I think that the 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 result I came out was was I think intuitive to me. It just so happens that if you if state capability seems to be more correlated with with growth than control of corruption. Um, they're both kind of like positively correlated with income. Rich countries do better of both. Poor countries do worse of both. Worse of both. But um, uh, if you improve your control of corruption and you don't improve your state capability, you get a negative effect on growth. Mm. So it, this suggests that uh, really the control of corruption. Is going to have a positive effect if it enhances state capability. That in the end, in the end, if if you say if I keep state capability constant and I just lower corruption, so it's it's a control of corruption that does not translate into the government doing anything better, then it actually you pay the cost of reducing corruption and you get none of the benefits. That's my interpretation of the data.
1: You've triggered a response from Marco. Yes, so. I, just, uh, no, no, I, mean, I really want to, to, to ask because I have
3: been reading this literature and sincerely I, I don't have myself a good answer. If it's possible to achieve the control of corruption if you don't have state capacity. I mean because they go hand in hand. Once that you develop state capacity, then it's much more likely that you begin to, to control or to fight cor- corruption. I mean, otherwise, I, 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 I cannot imagine, maybe there is, but I cannot imagine a scenario in which a country is capable of carving corruption without really improving the way That the state has the capacity to enforce the rule of law, so so I I don't know. I mean, it's a a a question in that regard.
1: You've now triggered Ricardo. Back to Ricardo.
3: So I can I can uh, imagine the following
2: situation: Uh, people are concerned with government, you know, corruption in government procurement. So they create these impossible procurement rules, and you shut down government. No one can do anything because it takes forever to contract anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, I, I remember a case in Liberia where <laughs> uh, the World Bank was demanding on all its procurement that you get three bids, uh, and they were bids for crushed stone, and there was only one crushed stone producer <laughs> in in the whole nation. So, so they you know they couldn't approve the project, and so I can't imagine. Situations in which you, uh, all these, because these rules to c- try to control corruption come at a certain cost, right? So you can imagine the cost being uh, is significant. And in particular, you know, many people find, uh, m- many of the attractions of these public-private partnerships is because in the private sector they can contract things more easily and, mm-hmm. and do things more, than than in the public sector that is, you know. That, that is so, so constrained in what it can do. So, so there might be a cost. I mean, c- the control of corruption may come at a cost in efficiency. Yeah.
1: Lourdes.
0: I, I agree with that uh, because an excess of control can make bureaucracy very ineffective.
2: And even more, control, more uh, corrupt. And, <laughs>
0: and more corrupt. <laughs> and okay. what kind of message are we giving also to public officials? We want the best ones to be there. So this legislation, these changes have to have to be accompanied by state capacity and institutional capacity. If not, we are not going to have the best ones there, because the best ones are not going to be to are not wanting to be a public official.
1: That that may be you know for the purposes of this discussion the easiest way to reconcile it, which is that issues of productivity and corruption shouldn't be considered in isolation and that we should actually be considering them in relationship to one another much more. Um, It seems to me that uh, this discussion uh, so far and some of the the legislative efforts that we've been discussing are are very much uh, top-down. They're at at least initially concerned with the actions of uh, uh, officials in high office. Um, But as we know, uh, in addition to uh, um, uh, corruption and impunity, at the highest levels, we also have everyday corruption and impunity. Um, In Mexico and in many other countries in Latin America, uh, 90 to 95 percent of uh, murderers, everyday murderers, are never prosecuted. Um, What's the the relationship between... um, Impuni- attacking impunity from the top and attacking it uh from the from the bottom uh, do you have to start in one place or the other do we have to do both at the same time what's what are the relationships uh who'd like to take that first uh marco
3: i mean i i think that that on the one hand it's not that you start in one part and on the other i mean you have been a government official yourself and uh, I cannot. Im- you have been uh, a minister. I cannot imagine uh, a scenario in which a government says, uh, "Well, we have these these things, and we just work on one part and do not work on the other." Okay. So, in that sense, it's a huge challenge because you you are you are forced to, to see how to tackle uh, the problem from both sides. I think that one of the of the of the of the keys on the top down, I really believe in the demonstration effect. And what what do I mean by that? Recently as part of this series of the scandals that that we were talking in Mexico last year the former former uh, commission uh, commissioner of the water federal supply he was running late for his vacation so he decided that he could take the helicopter of the agency for a lift to the airport. Okay? So f- fortunately for, for, for Mexicos, uh, the neighbor caught that on the phone and the video got viral immediately. The discussion viral, began right? viral. The, it began to, to increase that discussion immediately. He was forced to resign. But, I mean, in that sense, I mean, the fact that this guy thinks that is part of the entitlement of, that, of, of, of being a public servant, natural to use the helicopter for a ride, I mean, creates a demonstration effect in the sense of the low-level bureaucrat in the commission water. How do you say to him, don't be a corrupt official? If that big boss behaves in that way. If the president... He thinks of our country thinks that the conflict of interest in which he encore is just a perception problem and that corruption is a cultural thing. It is not a matter of that the institutions are not working. It's a matter of the culture. Then do you really believe that he has the moral authority, the political leadership to send the signal and he can believe be believed? that we need to, f- to, to move forward in a fight against corruption? Sicily? I doubt it. So of course, that the problem of corruption doesn't finish if you tackle only on the top. I mean, the normal citizen is concerned that if he's pulled over, there's no a relationship of corruption over there. That, by the way, we have also to accept that I mean, many, many times, if the citizen himself that provokes the act of, of corruption. It's not the official demanding the, the bribe but the, but the citizen offering it. So at the same time that you're trying to tackle, I mean, and it's part of the purpose of this legislation to begin, like, creating the fact, uh, demonstration effect on the top of the government officials that, that precisely, we were talking in the launch about this legislation in the penal code. Now fortunately, in the Uh, struggles on the negotiations with legislators, we achieve that in the penal code, as it it is in the U.S., it is a a matter of more years of punishment toward toward a government official that occurs in a corrupt practice than a member of the private sector. Precisely mimicking what is the concept here in the U.S. of public trust, of a governor official that in corruption betrays public trust right. and therefore has to be punished more severely than in, in comparison to the normal citizen.
1: Right. Uh, responses uh, from Lourdes, Ricardo, and then uh, we'll get to questions.
0: Yes. the problem is that there are some temptations on these uh, uh, bottom-up and top-down measures. The temptations are, for, exa- for instance, the temptation that we call the capture of the big fish. You know? Big fish, people that are very visible and you want to, some consequences against uh, corruption acts, is not going to finish corruption because it has been proven that corruption usually happens in networks. It's not a question of only individuals, but a whole network of people participating on that. So how do you dismantle this network? For example, the case that you... Talk about of the governor of Veracruz. The governor of Veracruz, he had the approval of the Congress to leave the state before finishing his period. And all the houses that he bought, he did it with the names of some public officials officials. So do you have the temptation of how long does it going to take to make the outcomes of these institutional reforms? Is society going to wait that long to trust on the new institutional framework? Is society going, is going to still demand for institutional changes? Or is it going to go on another, on another way? Or are they going to ask for other things, such as the Brazilian case or the Guatemalan case? So, there's a tension that is very present, and I think that uh, the challenge is very huge. But we have other examples, such as the electoral framework. It only took four years after the electoral reform to see some of the outcomes and to gain some trust. With the auditing office, it took five years to start seeing some outcomes. So we'll see if society is capable to wait and see the first outcomes of the new anti-corruption system.
1: Uh, I'm mindful of a week, uh, a week or so ago, we had um, we had the uh, pleasure of hosting the uh, commissioner for CICIG, the anti-corruption uh, body in uh, in Guatemala, and CICIG uh, before uh, with uh you know great visibility uh doing a prosecution uh last year that involved uh forced the resignation of the president of Guatemala uh you know CICIG had ceasing was convened in 2006 and uh and you know for for especially initially on uh suffered through a lot of criticism uh before um launching these sort of uh really history-making investigations in Guatemala. Uh, And with that, uh, thank you very much.
0: If you want to learn more about CID and our events, please visit cid.harvard.edu.